Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast to fill your soul, challenge your mind, and make you brave. I'm your host, Joy Clarkson, and an evangelist for all things good, true, and beautiful. So make yourself a cup of tea, find somewhere comfortable, and let's dive in to this week's episode. While we are in this life, we have in ourselves a marvelous mixture of both happiness and sorrow. We remain in this state all the days of our lives, but Christ wants us to trust that he is perpetually with us. Julian of Norwich, Revelations of Divine Love. The prophet Isaiah describes the servant of the Lord this way. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I take comfort in the idea that God chose to inhabit this fractured world of ours, that Jesus willingly took on a body vulnerable to the common cold, stomach flus, and the violence of hateful people. I do not know why our world is as broken as it is, or why God lets it be that way, but I know that God has not chosen indifference to our pain, but solidarity. And there's something else I love about this verse. The word acquainted. It makes grief sound like a person Jesus knew. Someone he talked with sometimes. It makes me think that if sorrow passed Jesus in the street, he would recognize it. Are you acquainted with grief? Hello, everybody, and welcome to um, our second episode in the Aggressively Happy podcast series. For the next few weeks, we will be exploring uh, the themes drawn out in my book, Aggressively Happy, A Realist Guide to Believing in the Goodness of Life. And this week, we're exploring the theme of uh, the first chapter, which is titled Befriend Sadness. So I have boiled myself a cup of tea, and I'm excited to sit down and discuss this chapter with you. Now, um, I should say that what I will be doing this podcast is not just kind of going over what's in the chapter. Um, I think that I put some of my ideas about this in writing in a way that I can't explore just speaking. I think that there's kind of an artistry to writing that I hope will give you something that I can't give you just through talking about it. So I'm not going to be just talking back through the chapter. What I'll be doing instead is uh, exploring three works of art that engage with the theme of this week's chapter. And I have all of these works of art listed in the, in the last bit of, the, at, uh, of each chapter in the book. So I would highly recommend that you go pre-order your copy of Aggressively Happy and then follow along um, for the next few weeks as we explore these themes together. Now, you might wonder, why in the world would I start a book about happiness or a series of podcasts about happiness with the theme of sadness? Now, there's two main reasons for this. Um, The first is that one of the easy kind of criticisms of this book um, and, and one that just is kind of floating around in the water that we live in, is that it could be engaging in something that people like to call toxic positivity. Now, toxic positivity is one of those sort of terms that um, goes viral. I'm not exactly sure where its origin was, but the idea of toxic positivity is that there is a kind of positivity that's not genuine and that actually um, kind of is unhealthy and and, and leads us to 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 probably deeper sadness and greater unhealth. So an example of this would be when you have something terrible happen in your life and someone just says, well, just try to have a good attitude or just turn it around. And and that kind of 
positive outlook, even though they might be trying to help you, is ultimately very hurtful and damaging. Now, um, this is interesting, I think, because I, I was just in a podcast recently, you can go listen to it, um, the Overthinkers podcast, which my brother Nathan hosts. And we were talking about the fact that in some ways, this is kind of an overblown fear, I think. I think the fear of toxic positivity, while very real, um, it might be overblown in an individual way, right? Like, I think that our world is much more saturated with negativity than it is with, with positivity. And so maybe our fear about toxic positivity might actually be a little bit overblown. It's funny, I was reading, I've, I've been reading a book recently that was talking about the fact that um, we don't really question being negative. Like if we have a negative belief about ourselves, whether that's I'm, you know, I'm not good at my job or I'm, I'm not beautiful or whatever. We think that's just a given because we have a, a predisposition towards negativity. Um, whereas if we try to take a positive outlook, we kind of cringe. We, we tend to have this kind of reaction of embarrassment or defensiveness or all these different things. So I think in, in one way, I would say that toxic positivity might be a little bit of an overblown phenomenon, but there's something in it, in the idea that is true, which is that we can't be truly happy by just stuffing down all the sad things that happen to us. We can't be truly happy by just ignoring the difficulties and the darkness of the world. And that leads me to the second reason, which is that the reason I started with sadness in this book is that I think that we can never be truly happy um, if we don't learn how to grieve well. Grieve the things that we have lost in our lives, the disappointments, um, the things that we should have had and didn't. Um, I think that if we don't learn how to grieve, we won't really be able to rejoice. And there's several reasons for that. Um, but I, I was thinking about one of them recently because, you know, I've been preparing to do this book and so I've been invited on several inter on podcasts and stuff. And they'll often send me questions beforehand. And recently someone sent me um, a question in great faith, so that I'm not criticizing the question asker. But the question said, um, have you battled with sadness? And I thought this was a really interesting way of phrasing it because it makes it sound like sadness is this enemy that I'm going to go um, battle. <clears throat> And that's a really interesting way of thinking about it, right? If we think about sadness as the enemy of happiness, then whenever sadness comes up for us, or, and I think you could say that for many other emotions, whether it was anger or fear, uh, we would see it as an opportunity to uh, kind of attack that emotion that we need to battle it, we need to overcome it, and we need to conquer it. And what, what that kind of mindset has led to in my own life is what I like to call emotional whack-a-mole, which is every time a negative emotion comes up, you kind of leap to try to whack it down. Um, and I think that when you're doing that, when all of your emotional energy is spent on trying to subvert these negative emotions, um, you actually lose, you're, you're spending so much energy um, whacking down these emotions that you don't have that natural ability to be joyful. And I think part of that comes from the fact that joy is actually a very vulnerable position to take in the world, right? To be joyful. When I think about all the physical postures that come with joy, it's throwing your arms open, it's laughing and throwing your head back. Um, it's all these things that relate to openness and to vulnerability. And, and if we are in a, if joy is a vulnerable posture, then we can't constantly be in this defensive battling posture towards our negative emotions. 
We won't have the capacity to rejoice if all of our energy is bent on uh, trying to kind of quash all of our negative feelings. But this kind of creates a problem, right? Because there's a reason that we don't like experiencing negative emotions. It's because they're negative and they're unpleasant. And, and we'll get to this in a minute, but I think also for me, uh, part of the reason that I've been afraid to deal with big negative emotions is because we are afraid of them. We think that sadness and anger and fear might actually tell the truth about the world. And happiness is just kind of an innocent interlude um, to the more fundamental reality. And that's why I gave the subtitle of this book, Believing in the Goodness of Life. Because I think that at the heart of this is this sense of what is fundamental to life. If it's goodness, then happiness is kind of our go back to place. Um, so, so this is this big kind of question of if, if we spend all of our time trying to whack a negative emotions, we won't have the energy to be happy. Um, and, and it means that happiness is a vulnerable emotion, but that means what do we do with the real sadness, the real loss, the real fear? And I want to put in a disclaimer here, which is that I am not a therapist. Um, I, I can only speak from my own experience. And one of the ways that I do speak from my own experience is by using art as a way to help us explore ideas. So that's what I'll be doing today. And the portion that I read to you from the beginning of this podcast is an excerpt from the chapter. Um, so I would encourage you to go get the book and read that chapter, which is kind of my own exploration of what it's looked like for me and, and good kind of helpful things along the way for me and learning how to get acquainted with grief, to get acquainted with sadness. But today we're going to explore that question through three works of art. And these are all, as I said, written in the book. Um, so you can go get that and explore this. Also, I should say that um, for the next 10 weeks, we will be exploring, I'll be doing this podcast and then I'll be posting kind of show notes and supplementary um, stuff and putting questions on my Patreon uh, where there will be a discussion group. So if you're, if you're wanting to go kind of deeper with this series um, and wanting to discuss it with other friends, um, I would recommend that you join Patreon um, where I will be hosting the discussion group engaging with these podcasts. So today we'll explore this question of acquainting ourselves with grief or befriending sadness through three different, um, and actually this is really four different works of art. We'll start with literature, uh, comparing the two very different and yet very similar um, collections, one called Notes on Grief by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, and then A Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis. Then we'll go on to explore a musical work. Um, one of my favorite pieces, actually. I, I almost feel odd that it's one of my favorite pieces, but it is. It gets at the drama of life. And that is uh, the Lacrimosa Movement from the Requiem in D Minor by Mozart. And then finally, we'll end today's discussion by talking about one of my favorite movies, um, Song of the Sea, which is something I've actually discussed on the podcast before very early on but it'll be fun to revisit this um, exploring this theme of befriending sadness so first let's begin by talking about our literary um, examples explorations of befriending sadness now the two um the two pieces that i've chosen are both short books that are written kind of an a journal entry style by uh, authors shortly after a bereavement. 
Um, Chimamanda Ngozi uh, Adichie's was written after the death of her father. Uh, this author, if you haven't heard of her, she's very interesting. I haven't actually read any of her novels, which is actually what she's famous for. Um, but I've read some of her her essay work, which is just beautiful. And she she's a very kind of famous TED Talk, which is definitely worth your time, called The Danger of a Single Story. And she's a Nigerian novelist and essayist and short story writer. And uh, during the during the 2020 lockdown, she lost her father. And she wrote this beautiful kind of collection of essays, very in some ways very stream of consciousness, very raw, about that experience of losing her father, um, and, uh, and and release that. It's called Notes on Grief, and you can actually read, I think, all of it on The New Yorker if you look it up there. I think the whole text is found there. Um, but then, to contrast with that, we also have um, a famous text written by C.S. Lewis, which is called A Grief Observed. Now, what's interesting about this text is that um, Lewis wrote it shortly after the death of his wife, um, Joy Davidman, and uh, for if you know a little bit about C.S. Lewis's life, he was a confirmed bachelor uh, for most of his life. And then uh, near the end of it, he had a brief but very kind of important uh, relationship, which was with Joy Davidman. Um, fun fact, Surprised by Joy, the book by C.S. Lewis, was not written about Joy Davidman. Uh, and in fact, this is one of my pet peeves, that that title is is actually a reference to a, a poem by Wordsworth. Um, but he got to know Joy and, and kind of married her. It was a little bit of a green card marriage so that she could live um, in the UK. And it was a bit of a scandal because she was a divorcee. And she, um, up until she knew Lewis, she had been an atheist. And um, But they, they got to know each other. They got married. And he, and he married her actually knowing, I think, I think he knew going into the marriage that she um, had cancer. And they were only married for just over three years, and she died. And Lewis wrote this, this little book, and he actually wrote it under a pseudonym. And uh, there's stories that he wrote it, and it was kind of these, just it was a collection of, of journal entries, basically, following her death. And, and the story goes that his friends, when it got published, said, Lewis, you should really, you know, or Clive or Jack, whatever they called him. Jack, you should really, I think this might help you. Might, you might um, help you as you're grieving your wife's loss. And people didn't realize that uh, Lewis had, in fact, written it. And the reason it's striking and the reason he wrote it under a pseudonym is that it's quite personal and it's quite different than anything else Lewis writes. Um, it really explores the profound questions that he experienced. You know, Lewis is famous for being this apologist, right, for the Christian faith. He was very well educated and um, he, he was famous for writing Mere Christianity, which is a defense of Christianity, and, and other works like The Problem of Pain. So he's kind of famous for that. Um, but, but in this book, he really, it's kind of to the bone. He, he talks about the ways that this death really shatters his world and, and it causes him to question the goodness of God. And, um, it's very, in some ways, it's a little bit, um, and he talks about this, it's a little bit indulgent, self-indulgent. There's kind of a inward um, feeling-y, it's, it's very different from Lewis's other kind of jovial, um, rational, merry writing. And I chose to put these two texts next to each other because they have both a lot in common, 
um, and a lot to, to teach us about what it looks like more than anything to experience um, grief. Uh, but they also have some, some important differences that I want to reflect on as we think about what it looks like to confront sadness in our own lives. Now, uh, I should also say that both of these are specifically talking about experiences of loss, the loss of a loved one. But I think that um, a lot of the sadness we experience in life is predicated upon this kind of fragility that comes with being mortal creatures, that our lives are short and mysterious. And, and I think that looking at these pieces, you know, they may not be on sadness more general, but on on grief is kind of instructive for us and um, and also can just be companions. I think something about both of these texts is I remember I once started to read Lewis's Grief Observed and then I stopped because I thought, this wasn't written for me right now. And so you may not want to read these unless you kind of need a companion on, on an experience of grief or of sadness. But I want to begin by reading you um, a section from the opening of, of Lewis's text, which I think is just a really beautiful piece of writing. So Lewis begins this way. No one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. I am not afraid, but the sens sensation is like being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning. I keep on swallowing. At other times, I feel like being mildly drunk or concussed. There's a sort of invisible blanket between the world and me. I find it hard to take in what anyone says, or perhaps hard to want to take it in. It is so uninteresting. And yet, I want others to be about me. I dread the moments when the house is empty. If only they would talk to one another and not to me. Now, I think the thing I find really poignant about this is, um, is the idea of grief feeling like fear. And I think that one of the things that's so difficult when you lose something is trying to understand how something can be good in the world and then lost and trying to understand if it is in fact lost. And I think the reason it feels like fear is because you feel like maybe you've looked into the heart of reality and the heart of reality is loss. And for me, I think that's sometimes been the experience of, of sadness in, in that's connection with fear is this kind of sense of um, a feeling like maybe sadness tells the truth about reality. Maybe loss is more fundamentally true than anything else. The other thing I find so striking about this is the way that he describes sadness, not just as a um, something we experience in our head, but this, the, the grief is kind of in his body. It's in yawning and feeling restless. Um, in, in the book, The Body Keeps a Score by um, Bessel van der Kolk, he talks about how the language we use about sadness, heartbreak, gut-wrenching, those really are actually describing physical things, that sadness isn't something just kind of in our emotions, in our head, but that we feel it in our bodies. And that's notable, too, in, in Chimamanda's piece as well. She says, My four-year-old daughter says I scared her. She gets down on her knees to demonstrate her small clenched fists rising and falling, and her mimicry makes me see myself as I was, utterly unraveling, screaming, and pounding the floor. The news is like a vicious uprooting. I yanked away from the world I have known since childhood. So there's a sense in both of them of... of the physicality of grief, and and that that's shared by both of them, but in a very different way. You know, Chimamanda uh, is is kind of 
embattled physically. It, it's, it, it's an outpouring, whereas Lewis has this kind of more um, kind of lethargy in the way that he's experiencing it. But both have this sense of having upset their sense of reality. And I think that loss does it. It makes you question what is at the heart of reality? And, and have I, has, is the loss the thing that's more true than was there? I think, um, as I think about these works, you should really read them if it's something you feel like you need in this period of your life. There's kind of three things that come out to me. The first is um, the universality of loss. And I think there's something to me that is um, deeply sad, but also deeply comforting about reading these two incredible writers who are who have strong intellects um, in their various ways, strong faith, um, and seeing that the strongest, the best, the brightest, the smartest also experience sadness and loss. And that, um, that this is an experience we all share, that there's a fragility of life and that we shouldn't look at ourselves as somehow being uh, lesser than because we, because we experience it uh, or because it, it, it shakes us to our core. And I think that's particularly interesting with Lewis that, you know, we think of him as this very strong defender of the faith, but that even Lewis in his darkest day had big, deep questions about God and that, that it brought it up that for him. And that um, this kind of reveals to us that this is a human experience, that we can't kind of get out of being human without knowing what loss tastes like. Uh, but also on the flip side of that, that you are not weak or sensitive when you are thrown off your horse by this experience of loss. The, the second thing it brings out for me though is, is that, that sadness and the way we experience grief is very different. Um, you know, Lewis's response to grief was, was to kind of call into question all the things he believed. But by many accounts, um, while Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie um, does, does you know, question her reality, uh, by many standards, it seems to be that it was also an experience which drew her back into, um, into faith in some ways. Uh, she's written about how she grew up in a devoted um, Catholic family, but she stopped going to church because she felt that it was, uh, there were some kind of problems with the Catholic Church in Nigeria. But she wrote about how actually after her father's death, she began to find comfort again in, in the beauty and the liturgy and the rituals of church. And, and I think it's interesting to see that both of these kind of had disparate reactions, right? That, that, that grief and sadness can lead us to different places. And it's interesting because Madeline Lingle writes an introduction to Grief Observed. Uh, Madeline Lingle, the author of Wrinkle in Time. And, and one of the things that she talks about is that she says, you know, it's a perfectly reasonable thing to rage and rail against God. But when my husband of 40 years died, I actually had this, I've almost never experienced so deeply the sense of presence of God and, and the kindness of God. And so I think that this reminds us that, that every experience of grief and of sadness is different, that there's no right way um, to grieve, that there's no... Um, a reasonable or unreasonable way to react to the losses of, of, of life. Um, and also to give us hope for something else, which is that sometimes loss is always loss. It's never good. We never need to be toxically positive about it and say there's some goodness in it. But that loss might accompany, in that we might be accompanied by a sense of God's presence. We don't have to fear that loss will confirm our suspicions about reality. It might be that in this we experience some of the most profound um, 
sense of love that we might we might know that grief testifies to something else and that's the final thing that i think comes out in both lewis and jimimanda's um, piece is that grief testifies to love and to the goodness of the things we have lost and and that that goodness speaks of some deeper reality and the conclusion to um to her introduction to a grief observed Madeline Lingle writes, in the end, what shines through the last pages of his journal of grief is an affirmation of love, his love for joy and hers for him. And that love is in the context of God's love. The um, passage that I read to you at the very beginning from Revelations of Divine Love by Julia Norwich, she says this beautiful thing um, over and over again throughout, throughout that book. Julia Norwich was a, was a mystic in the 14th century. And one of the things that she repeats over and over again from these visions she has of God is he is keeping us very safe. And she has this, this vision where she sees God holding something in his hand. And she says it's about the size of the hazelnut. And she asks God what it is. And God says to her, that is everything that is made. And she's, she thinks, oh my gosh, it could just all disappear like that. And I think that that sense of the fragility of life that she had was was very apt because Julian lived during the plague, uh, which contrary to the one we've just experienced, it, it wiped out up to 70%, sometimes up to 90% of certain areas in Europe. So she had a real sense that life was fragile. And so she says to God, how can it last? Why doesn't all this disappear? And he says, um, it lasts because I made it and I love it and I care for it. And, and over and over in the book, she has this refrain that God is keeping us very safe, that, that doesn't deny the, the loss that we experience, but that if God is eternal and God loves us, then love is never truly lost, that loss is never fundamental. So when, when Madeline says that the journal is ultimately an affirmation of love and his love for joy and that that love is in the context of God's love, there's this sense that grief is a holy thing because it testifies to the goodness of love, the goodness of the things that we lost. You know, Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn. And I think that part of what he means by that, at least in my own mind, is that people who mourn, mourn because they know they have lost or never had something that was very good. And that everything that is very good comes from God. And because it's in God, because it's held in God's love, because God makes it and loves it and cares for it, it can never truly be lost. And so in a way, grief actually, sadness actually does tell the truth about the world. But the truth that it tells is that there are things that are precious and good in this life um, that when they are lost, they're worth grieving over. But the grief itself testifies to the goodness of love and of, and of the goodness that we know life should have. So there is this, this holiness to grief um, that perhaps grief and sadness actually do tell the truth about reality. And the truth that it's telling is that there is goodness in the world. There is love in the world. And those things are worth grieving when they're gone. But we can hope that at the core, at the bottom of that experience of loss, might also be that sense that Julian has, that nothing is ever fundamentally lost in God, that it might be held somehow, even though we can't know exactly how. 
So, so much could be said on that. And I know that what I've said doesn't, is not adequate. It never can be adequate. But I find in both of these collections, um, really artful and beautiful thoughts that really act as a consolation to remember that none of us are alone in the experience of loss or of sadness. And like I said, I think that sadness and loss is not just loss of um, someone we love, but it can also be the loss of a life we thought we would have or um, the loss of a relationship with a parent we should have had. Um, there are many things to grieve, but I think these, these pieces remind me that we're not alone in grief. Um, they remind us also that there are many different ways to be sad and that we shouldn't beat ourselves up for being sad, not like somebody else. And finally, that, that grief testifies to the fact that we are made for goodness. We are made for love and that that loss is real. Now we're going to pivot to uh, explore a different piece. Um, and this is a musical piece and it's one of my favorites. So without further ado, let me begin by playing you just a bit of um, the section Lacrimosa from the Requiem in D minor by Mozart. So I absolutely love this dramatic, grand piece. Um, I have a playlist, which I, I think I made it during the first year of my PhD when I was turning in my probationary review. And it's called Dramatic But Perfect uh, but Perfect Playlist, I think. And this used to be, I think this used to be the first song on it, um, or it might have been a, a different one, but I, I remember listening to it over and over again when I was editing my first chapter of my PhD. And I remember at one point being home then my dad saying, what is that dramatic dirge music? And this was in fact dramatic dirge music, um, but it is absolutely um, beautiful. It's one of the great masterpieces, I think, of classical music. And it's a, it's a piece that deals with the fragility of life, our own mortality, and which has quite an interesting backstory in itself. So um, this, this piece is from a requiem. So a requiem, 
was a piece of music composed for a requiem mass, which is a mass for the dead. So when someone dies, often for a funeral mass or for remembering someone. And it was actually the last, um, the last piece of music that Mozart composed. And he died quite young. And, and this uh, piece was, um, he didn't actually even finish it. So one of his protégés, his wife commissioned one of his protégés to finish it for him. And this specific movement actually uh, is the very, as far as we know, the last movement that Mozart composed. And he only composed it up to the point where the choir starts singing. So when you have that wonderful kind of bum ba dum bum ba dum you know, that, that kind of gentle, hesitant, um, marching beginning, that was composed by Mozart. And then he only left notes for his, for his assistant to complete. What's interesting about it is that this was commissioned by an anonymous person. Um, uh, and the way that it came was supposedly, there's a great kind of mythology around it, but that a man in a gray cloak came to Mozart and, um, and to his house and said, will you compose this Requiem Mass? And Mozart began to compose it, never knowing who had commissioned it. And there are guesses about it. I think the guess is that it was, I think it's the mayor. Um, they think the mayor might have, might have commissioned it, but Mozart never really knew. And he began to kind of have this sense that uh, it was going to be his last piece and that he was composing his own funeral um, piece, which is just very, very interesting. So he came to believe that this was for himself, that this Requiem was for his own death. Now, obviously, this is a very different um, kind of piece because it's exploring a different element of, of the sense of the fragility and sadness of life. Uh, where the other pieces were exploring the fragility of our relationship with others, this one is kind of looking at the own, our own briefness of life. And I want to notice a few kind of things about it and then talk about how I think music is so helpful for helping us experience a kind of catharsis with, with sadness. Um, the first thing I think is helpful is to read the, the text of this. So up to this point, you've had the normal movements of the mass, which include um, the Kyrie Eleison and the um, Gloria and the Sanctus, which is Holy, Holy, Holy. And then you have this movement, which is, is called the Lacrimosa. And the Lacrimosa itself means weeping. And the text in Latin translates to this. Mournful that day when from the dead shall rise guilty men to be judged. Therefore spare him, O God, merciful Jesus, Lord, grant them rest. So it's this prayer to Jesus to, um, to be merciful on men at the end of their lives, the sense of kind of being aware of this, the brevity of our lives and the many ways in which we fail, and, um, and preparing for that. Now, what I love about this piece as an exploration of sadness and of the kind of fragility of life is that, um, that it kind of juxtaposes two things. One is inevitability, and the other is this sense of building or of grandeur and of meaning. So um, it's interesting. There's many different uh, ex there's many different ways to conduct this piece. So the one that I've chosen is is one of my favorites, and it emphasizes the kind of consistent marching sense of of the beat. That there's kind of this plodding uh, sense of the inevitability of this dirge coming, and um, and I like that because I think that it illuminates in this piece. Uh, the kind of mixture, I think it, I think it's kind of evoking Mozart's own sense of the inevitability of his own death and this kind of plodding onward, marching towards this judgment, towards this final end. 
um, but that it mixes that with this sense of grandeur and foreboding and and um, and beauty. You know that it's not this exact. It's not this nihilistic marching towards death. It's actually a little bit of a foreboding marching towards death because it's remembering that this life we live is um, will have meaning and will will be judged. But there's other ways of conducting it as well. So there's a famous um, version of it conducted by Leonard Bernstein, um, who um, who who conducts it in this very kind of languid, slow, drooping way. Um, and, and that's meant to convey the kind of sadness, the kind of heaviness of grief. Um, and, and I think that's, it's, that is also an interesting way to conduct it and to evoke the piece. Um, because it does something that I think music does really well, which is that it helps us enter into an emotional experience and allow resonance and dissonance to kind of exist and and be resolved within us. And I think the resonance that we have in this piece is the grandeur and meaning and importance of life uh, contrasted with this kind of march towards death. And I think that, um, you know, when Lewis says that um, it feels like fear, I think there is this contradiction in life of the meaning and profundity and beauty of life with this sense of its brevity and the marching towards that kind of inevitability of death. And how do we make sense and hold these two things together? And I think that's one of the things with befriending sadness is how do we make room for sadness? How do we let ourselves live in that experience without letting it become the entirety of our experience of life? And to, to explore that question, that leads us to our final work of art, which is also one we've, ex we've uh, talked about on the podcast before which is The Song of the Sea. Now, this is a film that was made by the filmmakers um, at the Cartoon Saloon, which is an animation studio in, uh, in Ireland. And it is, uh, it's one, I just think they do such beautiful work. The first film that I saw by them was is The Secret of Kells. And it um, looks at the creation of the Book of Kells, which is something I ta I've talked about in the podcast before and in this book. Um, and But they just have this incredibly beautiful animation style. And a lot of their other works are kind of historical, but this one takes place um, in the present day. And it has these kind of two narratives, one mythical or fairy tale-ish and the other one real life that are intertwined together. And it really is a film about uh, about grief, about sadness, and about emotion, and about what we do with the immensity of emotion that we're afraid might drown us. So in it, it tells the story of um, you, of this. Uh, there's kind of two stories that are intermingled. So uh, the first story we see is the story of uh, this husband and wife. Um, and they have two babies, and then and then suddenly the wife disappears. And so the story that we 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 enter into is this husband who lives on this island, and is very sad, um, and has these two children. And his mother comes to visit them, and is very worried about him, and thinks that he needs to move to Dublin so that she can take care of all of them. But this story kind of exists alongside this mythical story of MacLear and Maka, and this comes from from Irish folk tales. And um, in this story, uh, MacLear, who is the son of Maka, who is um, mysteriously um, a, uh, an owl. So this owl has this great um, son who is a great warrior, a great 
um, Irish warrior. And, and McLear has his heart broken. And he cries so much that he, that Maka's worried he's going to drown the earth. And so in a panic, she turns him to stone so that he'll stop crying. And he turns into this massive island in the sea where he's cried all his tears. So you can see this kind of myth-making of the sea came to be because uh, McLear wept and in his weeping um, cried a whole sea. And, and in, in this story, there's kind of this sense that Maka does this out of compassion because out of compassion and out of fear, because there's this feeling that what if he doesn't stop crying and he drowns the whole earth? And this uh, story is kind of played alongside um, the story of the children and, and the and the and the father and the grandmother, because the island that McLear um, becomes because of Maka, it, it kind of it has a mirror image of the island that the father and the two children live on. And as these children go about the story, they go to, to Dublin to be with their grandmother and they decide that they want to try to get back to their house. But on trying to get on their journey, trying to get back to the house, they encounter, um, they encounter fairies, but they begin to realize there's this, there's this great panic in the fairy realm because all the fairies are turning to stone and they can't figure out why. And ultimately they discover that it's because um, Maka, who first turned her son to stone so he wouldn't weep the whole ocean, is just obsessed with controlling things and controlling emotions. And so she starts to turn all fairyland um, into stone. And so there's this great kind of the, the, the pinnacle is when they go to visit Maka and she's this great big owl and she herself is turning to stone and she puts all of these emotions. Whenever she has a big emotion, she bottles it up into a little kind of Mason jar and, um, puts it on her shelf so that she won't experience these overwhelming emotions. But every time she does that, she turns to stone and the other fairies turn to stone as well. And that's really this picture of, of what the grandmother is doing to the son, that she's so afraid of his grief. She's so afraid that his grief might ruin him, might ruin his family, might never end, that she's trying to kind of staunch the grief, to put it, put it to death, put it in a jar. But in the same way that Maka is turning the whole realm of fairy into stone, the grandmother is not allowing the husband to actually grieve what was lost. So there's lots of other elements of the story and selkies play a role. Um, but to me, this is such a beautiful um, capturing of why we may be afraid to befriend sadness. Because we may be afraid, like Maka, that if we just let ourselves cry, that we might never stop crying. But the danger is that if we try to cut ourselves off from all emotion, we'll end up cutting ourselves off from beauty and joy and gladness and love as well. And I think that goes back to these initial kind of stories of love, of grief, is that ultimately grief is the story of love. And if we don't have love, we can't have joy. We can't truly have happiness. So Song of the Sea ends with this beautiful um, scene in which Maka becomes willing to experience all these emotions and all the jars break open. And suddenly there's, there's light and beauty and there's thunderstorms because she's been saving up tears, but there's also sunshine. And, um, and I think this is a beautiful picture of the fact that these, these emotions we have in life um, are like weather, you know? They, they will come and they will go and there's no need to be afraid of them. But if we try to cut ourselves off entirely from emotion, we'll become like Maka, who turns herself and everyone around her into stone. So 
these are not answers to the question of what it means to befriend sadness, but they're places to start, ways to help us think about this. Um, we've seen in, in notes on grief and in a grief observed, um, the fact that we're, that we're not alone in grief, that everyone experiences sadness, that there's no right way to grieve, and that grief itself, sadness, is, is a testimony to love and to hope and to the fact that the world is meant to be good. In Mozart, we see kind of this, um, this honoring, this dignifying of the, of the tragic nature of life. Um, but also the sense of the ability to hold intention that sad things can be true, but that doesn't make beautiful things untrue. We have to learn, like in music, to hold these two tensions together. And finally, in the Song of the Sea, we see this beautiful image of, of what it looks like um, when we try to cut ourselves off from emotion and thus turn ourselves to stone. So these are works of art that have helped me kind of reckon with, um, reckon with sadness, to get acquainted with sadness and to not be afraid of it. But I think that uh, what all of these show is that we need companions in sadness. Um, we, can't, we can't learn to befriend sadness alone. And so if you are walking through a season of grief, um, I pray for you and I hope for you and I would encourage you to find people who can help you sail the seas of sadness um, so that you're not alone. Uh, look for those literary companions, but also those real companions, whether they are friends or, um, or pastors or counselors or psychiatrists or mentors. Uh, we all need people to accompany us. Um, we don't we don't have to be introduced to grief alone. So I would say look for those companions along the way. So I hope you've enjoyed this kind of exploration of some art that explores the theme of befriending sadness. Um, I hope if you are on the Patreon that you will go and look at the show notes where I've included other, um, other resources and some discussion questions for us to engage with. And I also hope that all my other listeners will join me on Thursday when I will discuss this theme with my mom who just wrote a book this year talked about that's called um, Help I'm Drowning. So I hope you'll listen in then and um, that you'll continue to join me in this series of, of thinking about what it takes to cultivate a sturdy happiness in the world that doesn't look away from pain or injustice, but that finds ways to rejoice and live well anyway. Thank you all for listening and I hope you'll tune in next time. I hope you enjoyed this week's aggressively happy episodes. Don't forget to tune in next week and to pre-order your copy of Aggressively Happy, A Realist Guide to Believing in the Goodness of Life, which you can find wherever books are sold. Have a lovely week and remember to rejoice though you have considered all the facts.